You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Not so bad. Yourself? Good. Good. I'm in my new recording studio. What do you think? Well, it's it's definitely a different backdrop for sure. I see an unhung picture in the corner uh, and a plain background, which is very much like mine. I have not figured out what to do with the wall behind me yet uh, as I've been moving stuff around in my office, but uh, I like the natural lighting. Well, I'm, I'm actually liking this, you know, what is around 4.30 here, 4.30 p.m., and uh, the amount of lighting is just enough so you can see me, but it doesn't highlight every flaw on my face, every wrinkle and every line. So I'm actually pretty good with four o'clock. When I set this up, it was about two o'clock and I have a sudden exposure on my, again, you know, just a level set for everybody. We're in the U.S., in the Northern Hemisphere, obviously. So Southern exposure, I get the sun beating in through my window and around two o'clock this afternoon, it was like, it didn't, the vibe didn't match with my normal vampire mode. You know, normally I like to work in the dark and like somebody opens a window. It's like, ah, the light. <laughs> uh, you would love the uh, Samsung beauty filter on the Android phones that they have that like does this just over the top aggressive smoothing of uh, facial uh, like tones and features and things like that. Um, that's definitely a way to go. But that's also why we do an audio podcast, because as we are, have always said, we've got faces for radio and voices for a silent movie. So uh, that's just how we roll here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if we ever go video, it's like it's going to be the Snapchat version, kind of like you were talking about there. <laughs> well, people are going to see us uh, at the uh, at the Authenticate conference. Uh, so we're recording this a couple weeks early because we'll be out you know, doing that. So hopefully, uh, that'll go well for us, but, uh, it'll be interesting just getting out in the world again and, uh, meeting the identity. Well, we can always tell people it's like, ah, this is the COVID 15, you know, I mean, we were indoors for the last 18 months eating food and not exercising. And that number is adjustable, right? So if I said, oh, this is like the COVID 30 or COVID 40, right. I think people would get that. I think I think the the joke plays. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we uh, why don't we talk identity? Because I think uh, that's enough inane banter uh, for today. Um, we're going to get to a, a pretty interesting conversation. One that I think is going to maybe have questions that we don't all have answers for, but I think it's a good time to bring these up because of the prevalence. And that's really around identity in the public sector. So things like identity orchestration, identity proofing, those sorts of things. Uh, And really to kind of help explain some of the challenges and opportunities that we have around that. Uh, We're welcoming back to the show, Mike Vesey. He's the CEO and president at IDRAMP. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks. Glad to be back. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. So you were with us all the way back in November of 2019, one of our very first guests, episode number 21. And now we're in the 100 and teens, I want to say like 118, somewhere in that area. Um, so it's been a while. Um, what's new with ID Ramp? Because the last time we talked was around kind of blockchain identity. And we just we had a pretty good conversation and you know, trying to see, you know, what are the use cases around it? So, so what's new at ID Ramp? And maybe you can also take this opportunity to kind of refresh us. You know, what is it that ID Ramp looks to solve? Sure. Yeah. Happy to. A lot has changed and and yet a lot is the same. So I'm happy to be back and talk about, um, you know, where we're at uh, today versus a couple of years ago and, and some of the things that we're seeing, uh, especially in public sector, because, man, that is that's that's a that's a 
an area right now that is moving at uh, at light speed, which is not typical for public sector, right? Normally, those things are very slow and, and uh, deliberate. And we're seeing a lot of transformation now because of uh, driven by necessity. You know, the world changed about 18 months ago. So um, ID ramp, we're, we're, you know, still uh, primarily focused on on really the, the identity uh, orchestration journey. So we're helping organizations um, uh, enterprise organizations, as well as public sector, kind of get their arms around multiple identity sources as it pertains to service delivery. And those services are really all over the board. They can be common, you know, services like we all use every day, Zoom and Slack and things like that. Or they can be, you know, highly customized uh, public service uh, um, systems developed for the public sector, which is why I think this conversation is so applicable. Um, always been focused there, you know, very dynamic platform allowing you to bring in different identity providers and and truly orchestrate that process from what type of an identity you bring in, what type of factors you want to deploy, and ultimately uh, launching them out into into the um, service uh, that they're of their choosing. And what's really changed in the last couple of years is the, the conversation we had, you know, very early on about uh, blockchain identity and really the ability for us to generate verifiable credentials based on those identity attributes and allow um, individuals to, to control those and bring those into the verification process. That's really we're, we're seeing some exciting growth there. And um and really, it, it leads into the conversation we're going to have today, which is how do we better identify and how do we better use um, uh, personal identities as they flow through these very disparate systems? So, uh, so we've we've continued building out our product suite to do things like uh, you know integration of of multiple factors into our mobile digital wallet. Um, including, you know, biometrics and things like that, that of course we're seeing a lot of, of interest in and, uh, and really just tried to, to, to complete, com- make a complete ecosystem that, that an organization or an enterprise can really use to, to help them from where they are now and help them move into a, a more decent, decentralized, uh, future. And Mike, you're really on the front line of a lot of these, um, headline grabbing type. Uh, initiatives like mobile driver's license. And to remind everybody, this is something that Jeff and I talked a few weeks ago about mobile driver's license starting out in the state of Georgia, which is my home state. Um, Vaccine passports, right? That's on the tip of everyone's tongue. Jeff talked a little bit about uh, the conference that we're speaking at next week and get to do some preparation. I, I would liken that to a vaccine a vaccine passport, if you will, is a digitization of that vaccine card that we we had at least for me it was stuffed in my wallet and it's a a much better way about of going about it uh but you know digital diplomas of course digital citizen identity and what i think is like super interesting is e-voting or i-voting like internet voting which you know at least globally is has got a couple of seed use cases that maybe you can speak to um, but I guess I'm, I'm wondering, with you being on the front line, what are you hearing from your public sector contacts and customers about adopting these kind of transformative initiatives? Yeah, Roy, great question. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, it's incredibly timely because uh, things are changing so fast. And and that's just not typical. E-voting was something, you know, obviously we've talked about it for years and um, and it's always been 
it's always been taken with, yeah, you know, at some point and someday. And now we have the change happening. We have the transformation happening as public sector entities gear up to work and interact virtually with their uh, with their customers, right? Us as, as citizens and residents, we're now laying the foundation and building the framework that we can build really cool and creative so- solutions like e-voting on top of, because we're going to have to have the identification layer figured out. And I'm not saying that we've got that figured out today and everything is, is downhill from here. A lot of moving parts in that, and we're continuing um, to, to evolve and, and move the needle, but it's happening. There's absolutely no choice for our government um, to go back to a to a uh, in person world, right? There's just no choice to do that anymore. We have to transform those processes and provide some um, some virtual interaction points, and that's going to allow us to really lay the found work, uh, the foundation that we can build a lot of other creative um, and 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 forward moving processes around. You mentioned health passports. There, I mean, there everywhere, right? We hate the word passports. Nobody likes to use health passports, but the reality is there are things happening The the, you know, the U S is talking about opening borders again, Canada is opening the borders again. And all of those things, uh, whether we like it or not, have a dependency of, of some kind of, um, health check and, and status. And, uh, um, and so those processes are, are being put in place now and our hope is that more often than not, they're in some type of an interoperable format that um, that can be used in in and um, uh, in in a more broad context than just this is my solution and that's your solution. So, a lot of interesting things we're hearing. Um, you know, two years ago when we did, or whenever how long ago it's been, we did the podcast. We, if you would have asked me our primary um, customer composition, it was all larger enterprise organizations. And that has dramatically shifted in the last 24 months. We're now, we now have a ton of interest from um, government entities, public sector organizations wanting to do really cool um, solutions. And I say cool, but to them, it's like just staying alive, right? They have to deliver their services and they have to do it virtually. I think it's cool because we're, we're finally pulling the, the consumer into that conversation. Um, and, and of course, you know, digital diplomas, Education. Uh, we're working on a couple projects there that are incredibly exciting too. That uh, we've actually got a, a state that's going to be issuing digital diplomas for all of their graduating seniors next year in an open format. How cool is that? You know, we can use that. We can use that uh, um, credential for higher education, for workforce consumption, uh, all over the place. And those types of things are happening. And and it's just a really really exciting time to be in identity. And boy, not many people have said that. Well, it's certainly challenging for sure. Um, I mean, we're talking about scale and scope, right, of a lot of different issues that are out there. And you kind of talked about this already as the velocity with which, you know, public sector tends to move is not that quick, generally speaking. Um, Might have been forced into the lit here, right, with pandemic and things like that. But it's also expensive to get a lot of this kind of framework of, of, tools and technologies and processes and all that stuff kind of put in place, I got to imagine that that cost and the complexity has really kind of been pretty significant. And, you know, with the challenges that we see from, you know, budgeting and funding and all that sort of stuff, I guess, what are, what are your thoughts on how do you see, you know, people who are in the public sector who might be listening, might be decision makers, kind of navigating some of those key challenges? Yeah, the key, key challenges, nobody can um, nobody can really afford lift and shift 
And so, so we can't come in with, um, with a forklift solution, right? Uh, we focus a lot. And I know a lot of us in the industry spend a lot of time thinking about those bridges, those digital bridges. We have to provide a way to, to really understand where these organizations are. No, no sector more important than public sector because it's, um, it's so diverse and their customer base is so diverse. Um, in an enterprise, we have the luxury of saying, here is our remote access process and it will be adopted. You don't really have that luxury in public sector. You have to build your systems a lot more inclusive and, and open um, than that. So standards are huge. We have to find standards-based solutions and we have to speak their language. So it's one, something that we focus on uh, a lot here um, at IDRAMP is really just how do we provide the solution that, that, that brings value and simplicity and, and uh, friction reduction in the traditional landscape today, and then allowing a modular uh, bolt-on, you know, a modular integration point to, to evolve into digital identity and, by supporting all of those standards. So we don't look at just one solution and say, this is the solution we need to sell. We try to come in and 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 be inclusive of what's going on today and then provide options and flexibility for moving beyond that. The ultimate goal, obviously, is that um, when we get to a purely decentralized world and, and everybody's carrying around all these credentials and verification, ID ramp really shouldn't be needed, right? We, our goal is to put ourselves out of business someday, and that's going to be a long, long time coming. But, but that's where we need to get to. And we, we just try to provide that open, that open platform. And I think that's the most important thing we can, we can keep, uh, we can keep in mind because you're right. It's, it's moving faster than it ever has. It's costly and it's very complex to go in and replace these core systems. So I think we need to fracture that and, and really think small and modular. And, um, you know, that'll, that'll hopefully get us, uh, get us where we need to be. Consumers are going to come along faster than, than the providers, right? I mean, our consumers, uh, are, are incredibly dynamic. When you put a challenge in, in front of us, uh, as, you know, as consumers, um, we find a way through it. And, and with the technology we have at our disposal today, I think that's going to be somewhat easier. The bigger challenge is going to be on the infrastructure side. Well, I think that infrastructure poses um, kind of a unique challenge, right? Because a, a lot when you think public sector, you think you know for 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 right or for wrong, you know, archaic, kind of old, aging, crumbling infrastructure. Whereas that might be true for one country, but not another. I think of a country like Estonia, which does have digital ID. They do digital voting, and. You know, I think some some folks look to them as sort of is that the future, right? Maybe they don't have all the all the you know the 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 issues kind of worked out of it yet. And I'm sure there's certain concerns around it, but I think there's a big challenge between starting fresh or how do you take what you currently have and not alienate your existing citizens, for example, and pull them along into this new world, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of challenges. How do you, how do you basically re-identify <laughs> or reissue a credential to literally every one of your citizens if you don't have some way to pull them along into whatever this new process or this new system looks like? Yep. Yeah. It's, it's uh, that's a great point. And actually in some ways we're, we're fortunate that we're, that we're not further along and we don't have a lot of, of, uh, um, you know, of things that we need to go back and re-educate or, or re, you know, uh, for example, if we would build what I think you know is our ideal today in digital in a digital uh, 
ecosystem would be very highly decentralized using things like we talked about last time, which is blockchain, you know, rooting those credentials in, in public ledger networks that nobody has to, to own and maintain. But had we built this 10 years ago, right, we may not have had any choice but to use some of those centralized systems. So uh, in some respects, you know, I feel like that I feel like where we are now is 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 right where we need to be, which, of course, is a natural um, feeling. And the technologies that that have evolved and, and come along, not to mention that the power that we all now carry in our smartphones um, gives us a really, really unique opportunity to not only do this, but do it right and do it in a way that we can that we can continue to build on um, and not be staring at this thing in, in five years going, well, we screwed that up. Now what? You know, and, and so I think we have a really interesting opportunity. And I can't say that we could have done this um, at any time prior to to now. So it maybe, you know, maybe this is when it's supposed to happen. Hey, Mike, when I think about public sector and IT in general, but specific to uh, IAM, I think of, you know, a heterogeneity, a heterogeneous type environment. So you have a lot of different technologies that need to communicate with one another. Um, and they, you know, in architectures that support that type of heterogeneity at scale, you need layers of abstraction, you need orchestration. And I know those are kind of industry buzzwords, but am I on the right track? Is that kind of what you see out there? And if so, like, um, kind of talk us through that. Talk us, you know, about, how that orchestration piece and the layers of abstraction fit into the overall picture. Yeah. A, a great insight. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. And I mentioned this earlier, standards are, are so important here being able to, to follow um, not only the, some, some new forward facing standards that are, that we try to achieve some uh, level of interoperability, but also existing standards and how we interoperate with, with those um uh, identity silos that are filling our world right now. And, you know, we have to, we have to provide that interoperability and we have to provide some control for, for us as, as residents and citizens to, um, to play some part in that, right? We have to be involved in those consent decisions. We have to be involved in what information we send. Uh, the, the, this is just so overutilized, but you know, it's the, I walk into a, to order a drink at a restaurant or something, right? It's that identity um, information that I have to disseminate in order to determine my age. What do we do today? It's horrible, right? I give them my address. I give them my birthday. I give them all this other information because I'm presenting a paper credential. So being able to do that digitally and, and I need to be in the middle of that process. So that that's going to transform things because we're not set up that way right now. All of our all of our identity verifications are based on legacy systems that home run all of that information back to some mothership for you know for identity uh, verification, and we need to break that. In order to break that, we have to embrace all of those identity silos and make sure they can be included in this message as well. You know, we can't just say, "All right, that was yesterday, and this is today." We don't have the luxury of making that break. Um, we have to include those those variety of, of existing solutions and and really orchestrate them right at the risk of overutilizing that word. But we have to uh, uh, allow them to to play in this journey and incorporate the ability to do that backhaul when needed, 
but then also some options to take that information and say, okay, I know we have to go back and get it now, but can we just credentialize that? Is there anything in here that we can just um, that we can just do to, to take the dependency off of that centralized connections? More often than not, the answer is going to be yes, there is. But sometimes, you know, we may just have to go back and, and do that check. And that's just fine. We'll live with that and we'll evolve out of that. Um, we can't just simply turn it off. So I, I like that question. It was a, it's it's great. And that is in my mind. Right. That's that's orchestration. That's what it means. We've got all this stuff. We have to be able to embrace it and carry it forward into our vision of what you know tomorrow needs to be. I mean, you mentioned it, you know, kind of utilizing that word orchestration. I feel like identity orchestration has a lot of buzziness around it in different areas, whether it's cloud, on-prem. Now we're talking kind of like sovereign identity, right? Things like that. Um, you know, I think there's a difference between talking about it, maybe POCing it, trying things out. But, you know, is there anybody doing this actually in the real world from a production standpoint where, you know, there's an e-government project or something like that, that, that you can kind of point to and say, you know, here's, here's an example of how in the real world, some government entity is kind of moving forward on this and, and kind of leading this, uh, this identity transformation. Yeah. And that's, it's incredibly exciting. There's, there are a couple, I mean, there, there are many, I'm sure that have been going on, um, for years, but th without question, the most exciting is the announcement that was made just probably a couple of months ago now um, with uh, Ontario. So Ontario released a digital identity uh, strategy for all of their residents, citizens, did an incredible job, not only of designing the technology to be privacy preserving all of the things that we hit on, um, you know, before secure, verifiable, um, uh, sovereign control and, and voluntary, right? So um, they hit on all those key points, but what they really did well is, is put the education together, right? So if you go out and find on their website, they have an, an entire section of the website about Ontario digital service and digital identity service and how it's going to be used, where you plan, where you can plan on using it how you get it, what it means. And, and that is a, uh, it's a great template for, um, for all of us to understand the thinking that's gone up, uh, gone on there. And, and I think it is, you know, that I, I do know because we're, we're kind of involved in the technology. I know the technology underlying this and it's solid. It's great stuff. It is privacy preserving and it will work. The scenario I just provided um, with uh, proving of, you know, proving of age, it'll have all of those zero knowledge um, proof uh, um, fundamental technology innovations included um, in this in this deployment. So I would suggest we all go and take a look at what they're doing up there because they're doing some really cool stuff. And uh, and again, you know, we we now have to build those bridges for all of their existing merchants and businesses to do um, uh, to to be able to contribute and participate uh, and try to give them an easier way to do that, uh, you know, to, to, um, to embrace this new digital ID as, uh, as consumers, um, evolve themselves or voluntarily sign up to, to, you know, to be part of this digital ID ecosystem. So that's a, that's a great one. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of stuff going on in Europe. Germany has a great initiative over there for digital identity, but, um, Without question, the best I've seen from an organization perspective um, and education is is what's going on in Ontario. And Mike, if we're going to be doing all these, you know, future facing, I'd say cutting edge um, 
technology initiatives, mobile driver's license, internet voting, vaccine passports. It can't be based on passwords, right? Passwords are, uh, I feel like our, our show is 99% around kill the password. Passwords suck. Everybody knows that we can't build the future on the password. So, um, one, I guess, you know, is that when, when you're talking about all these things, can we just assume the password is not going to be there? Or is that too, um, too timid of an assumption? Or, or is that too um, uneducated to think that we're actually ready to get away from that? And then what is really holding us back from a passwordless future in your, in your opinion? Yeah, passwords suck. I've got t-shirts actually that we made up. It just has our logo and it says passwords suck. Um, they, there is no, ex- I'm going to, I'm really going to, I'm going to put myself out there a little bit here, but uh, there's no excuse. If an application is written today that uses a password, then that is on the developer to own that. Um, there is absolutely no excuse to use passwords today. Even if you use a simple verify my email two-factor credential uh, or whatever. It's much, much better than than requiring registration and the creation of a password. And every single day I want to interact with some service and guess what? The first thing they ask me to do is create a password. So I could not be more passionate about it. There's absolutely zero reason today that passwords exist other than our um, um, stagnant uh, um, um, thinking uh, and and really the the lack of forward momentum within the enterprise as the carrier and I don't want to blame enterprise um, I just think they're perfectly suited because they can they can demand it and and you know for the most part everyone's moving that direction right in various different ways some uh, you know better than others but at the end of the day if we if we remove them not mask them not put them in some kind of a manager application that, that fills it in for me. There's still exposure there. I want them gone, right? I have the ability to hold cryptographic connections between myself by, you know, with help of my smartphone or whatever. And every website, every person, every car, everything I interact with, I have the power to do that. I'm just not doing it yet because the applications haven't been retrofitted to, uh, to use it yet. But um, passwords have to go away. I mean, I, I, I hope we can get to a point where we don't even have to have this conversation. Like I said, I, I, it needs to become socially uncool, right, to create a password. And once that happens and the consumers go, well, I would buy your products or I would use your site if you didn't ask me to put in a password, then I think we can get somewhere. And I see that day coming. Um, I just wish it were today. Yeah, and I think that... Um Probably a, a my I, I think the bigger issue is exactly where you went, which is that there's still these edge cases where um, it's kind of like, oh, well, that's where a biometric wouldn't work or possession-based authentication wouldn't work. Uh, but I, I still think there are misconceptions related to, you know, biometrics, whether it's facial scanning or fingerprint, that somehow your your face is now turned into something that if there's a data breach, someone's going to have a picture of your face, right? Um, So I think there are concerns about the use of facial scanning technology. Um, I'm wondering, are there ways that we can um, still respect privacy 
and at the same time accomplish the same result. So fingerprints, voice match, or not using a biometric, using possession, but not using a biometric. I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that's that's great, uh, a, a great um, uh, way to look at it because there is a really, uh, I mean, there's a lot of conversation around um, a facial scan and, and and biometrics in general, and there is a right way, there's a wrong way. That's all, of course, subjective. Um, in my opinion, the uh, the biometrics that we have and, and possess are just factors. I would much rather use um, something that is, you know, that's tied to me as a, as a proof, um, than a password or, uh, or something I know, but again, that's, you know, put that in the right context. If it's me providing that biometric, um, in a zero knowledge way that is basically just going to check some, you know, check some box and say, okay, yep, that looks like Mike. Uh, and then pass along the fact that yes, that's Mike. I'm okay with that. If it's passing that whole my biometric, um, then, you know, there's, there's issues there. And I think that a lot of that is the, the biggest challenge we're going to have is, is that we're, you know, our challenge or our goal is to make this technology easy for the masses. And we can't explain, um, we just have to know that it's trusted. We can't explain what's happening. We just have to develop it in a way that the consumer is comfortable with, with what's going on. I think it's absolutely essential that we do, uh, some some type of biometric factor in, in a much better way than we do today, right? I use biometrics to log into my bank account today. But if I scan my face and hand you my phone, you can do anything you want to do, right? That Should that be the case? I would feel personally, I would feel much better if my bank said, okay, during this session, we're going to scan, you know, once every five seconds or three seconds or continual we're going to continue to scan. And if I turn that phone away, it locks, right? That's how applications should be designed. And, uh, and that's the use in my opinion of where, you know, facial scanning technology and biometric factor type technologies should be used. So I think there's a, I think there's a huge role in biometrics in the, in the, uh, in our future, especially in the future of digital identity. There's no question. We have a, a great way today to derive an identity, we can carry identities through credentials, um, you know, and, and cryptographic connections. Um, but we absolutely need those biometric factors in order to secure our applications and and provide that you know that last mile of defense. And things get much easier once we do that, right? We we reduce fraud, we reduce we certainly elimination of passwords. Uh, we keep having that conversation, but they they should go away in favor of of who I am. You know, we shouldn't have a persona at all that, that I create. Um, I should just use me. So, um, so I think that's going to, there's a huge role there and, and that technology is evolving. I think we've seen, you know, the market <laughs> explode with biometric service providers. I know we've certainly seen our share of biometric service providers coming in and saying, Hey, you know, we really need a better carrier um, to, to carry biometrics into the identity market. Um, so, you know, we've had some interesting conversations there. And, and I just think there's a huge, a huge future um, as biometrics really are assimilated into, or that's a, probably not the right way to say it, but as the, our biometrics are integrated into applications and, and, uh, um, and the development of applications and authentication systems. Here's a, here's a question for you, because I think biometrics is interesting. Obviously, that's an area that a lot of 
um, I think people are hanging their hats on, right? Whether it's voice print, face print, uh, fingerprint. Um, at some point in the future, maybe, and this has kind of already happened, you know, there's this concept around inserting an RFID chip, right, into your wrist, your hand, your finger, whatever it may be. Here's my question, though. Is that biometric authentication? If it's a physical device that's inserted into you, would you consider that biometric authentication? No, it's it's another factor. Now, depending on the scope of the integration of that device, if that device, when removed, can detect that it's been removed, then you can make an argument for biometric, right? If it says, oh, hey, I'm no longer in Mike, I'm now in Jeff, you know, then, then absolutely there's a biometric component to that. But if not, then it's just another factor. It's no more... It's of no more value. It's a convenience feature is what it is. It's of no more value for me from an identification perspective than pulling out my physical driver's license from, from that, you know, from that perspective. Uh, so I think when we talk about things like that, um, it's for convenience, right? It, it's almost like the, the pet chipping. There's a great analogy. Mike just associated RFID tags for people as pets. Um, Sure, that'll make a headline somewhere. Uh, but but it, it really is a convenience thing, right? It's not about identification at that point. It's about reducing the friction from me um, and my day-to-day processes. And I mention this a lot to my team when we're trying to explain what I want the user experience to be. I'm going to date myself. You remember the old, you know, get smart when, you know, Max Smart was, he was, he was, he was walking, you know, he was walking down the hallway and all the doors just opened and just got out of his way. That's how my identity journey needs to be, right? I want a hundred different doors that are protecting the, whatever I'm trying to get to, but I don't want to have to interact with any of them. I just want them to get out of my way. And that's where I think biometrics provide something that we can't do even in you know, today, when we say password removal, you know, at ID wrap, oh gosh, we can remove your passwords. We ask you to form a connection, maybe scan a QR code. Who wants, I mean, it's still a lot of friction, right? And and is it better than typing in a password or having to go and look it up on a, a notepad stuck to my monitor? Absolutely. It's better than that. But that's not where we need to get to, right? Eventually we're going to get to, I'm just me and I'm interacting with the things. Everything in my way knows how to look for me and figure out who I am and just get out of my way. So that that's that's my holy grail. I hope to see it in my lifetime, um, but we got to get going. Fair enough. I, I feel the same way. I think it's it's a it's a way around, <laughs> right? Uh, something like that. So um, you know, Mike, this has been a fantastic conversation. I want to be kind of cognizant of the time that we have with you, um, and this has been pretty pretty heavy conversation too around public identity and a lot of the concerns and challenges that kind of goes along with it. So what I want to do is start to pull us up to the surface. And end on a little bit of a lighter note here with you. Uh, so we're going to go with something non-identity related. And what I have for you is how many places have you lived and what was your favorite one? I am so boring. I have lived in a total of three places. And, you know, my favorite, even though it was the shortest, and that's probably why it's my favorite, was Tucson, Arizona. And I love Tucson because... I could drive up to Mount Lemmon and snow ski and I could drive down and play golf in the same afternoon. And at that stage of my life, I didn't have a lot else to do but ski and golf. And it was great. You know, it was absolutely awesome. Um, I love Tucson. I was only there for a couple of years and uh, I lived in Omaha for a number of years, did my first startup out there in the mid to late nineties. And uh, what a great community, uh, you know, just, just unbelievable people, businesses, thriving tech community loved it but uh 
you know, home is Iowa and this is where I started and probably where I'll finish. I love to get out of Iowa as everyone in Iowa does, right? We, we love to go, um, we love to go South when it's cold and, and uh, North when it's hot, but, um, it's, it's where I've been. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty boring. I've only been three. Well, Tucson's not bad, right? I think any, I don't know any way to who would argue with, you know, skiing during the day or, or, you know, and then going golfing. That's, that seems like a pretty full life. I would be happy with that. Uh, I'm pretty boring too. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the math in my head and I only go up to four <laughs> different places. And I've been in the Chicago area for the vast majority of my life. That's so, you know, I think when we want to caveat the, the one place, we're limiting it, I think, to a kind of a geographical city kind of area. I've certainly moved around the Chicago area quite a bit. Um, I don't know if I can really kind of call it my favorite because it's really my only adult really kind of memory around it. I've been here since I was like six years old. So I don't get to see the mountains. We just don't have them here. It's all flat. It's all traffic. It's all construction. Uh, people are really nice. The food is really good. Uh, but man, I love when I get to travel and, and see different types of geography. So I love going to Monterey, Mexico, for example. Uh, we have, we've had some clients. We've made some friends down there. And every time I'm down there, I just kind of like sit and stare at the giant mountains and, you know, the, just the way that it looks is so fantastic. I love going to California as well for the same reason, but also for the ocean. Uh, I'm not much of an East Coast guy. Uh, I'm not a heat and humidity guy. So for me, I think temperature is very important as well uh, and low humidity. But, um, you, know, I, I'm, you know, I'm boring too in that four places, mostly Chicago. And, uh, you know, maybe at some point in the future, I will uh, spread my wings and fly a little bit more. But like you, I love to travel and, and see other areas. Jim, what about yourself? So I've moved around quite a bit. Um, I count nine distinct places that I've lived. Many more addresses than just nine, but nine distinct places. Uh, my favorite place to live, and I, I think this is, if anybody's looking for a place to move to in the United States, give Charlotte, North Carolina a consideration. It's like a small city with all the big city stuff. It's a home airport for, um, well, what is now American Airlines, what it, used, it was US Air. Um, it, you know, that they're putting in like light rail and things like that, uh, but you can really afford to live there. So I definitely would recommend that to anybody who's thinking about trying to find their city. Uh, but I wanna just mention one, because I think it's a funny story was that I lived in Middletown, Pennsylvania. Do you guys have any idea of what's in Middletown, Pennsylvania that's special? It's uh, Three Mile Island. Three Mile Island is the, the one location in the United States where you had a, a major meltdown of a nuclear power plant. And so when that took place, there was a, um, a release of toxic nuclear gas from, from the tower and, you know, obviously it caused problems and made people want to not live there. Uh, so one of the things that the electric company did was they were giving electricity away for like 20 years after the accident. Well, I had moved to that town right before that, that ended. So I was able to get free electricity for a few months while I was there. And then even when they started charging for electricity, it was extremely cheap. So 
kind of a cool story. Yeah, I, I'm glad you established a timeline there because I thought maybe you were going to say you had something to do with the Three Mile Island accident. And I was going to start to <laughs> ask you some questions and maybe validate some things for us. But uh, I like how you saved it at the end and said, oh, I was there towards the end of the 20 years of free electricity. So you kind of skated away on that one. Yeah, right. Well, I, I, I have no problem dating myself, but I'm not quite old enough to have actually played a part in that. You know, it's funny you mentioned Charlotte because my wife and I are actually thinking about moving to that area. We've been looking at Asheville quite a bit, which is a little bit west of Charlotte. And I have a friend who lives north of the city of Charlotte. And, you know, there's mountains. It's it's the Blue, I think it's the Blue Ridge Mountains are in that area. And uh, the weather is a lot different in the Asheville area because we're at the base of the mountains. So it's not quite as hot and humid. But I'm not going to say anything bad about Asheville, but if we ever get back to being road warriors at the level that we were at you'd be better off in charlotte because you've got the international airport there otherwise you're going to fly from Asheville to charlotte or drive the two hours to get there each time and there's and Asheville's more expensive than charlotte at least when i was there you know eight years ago it was it was a lot more expensive than charlotte yeah, for sure. I think that's the one thing I would miss about moving out of Chicago is O'Hare, for all its uh, faults and quirks, is I can get anywhere on one flight, pretty much. I very rarely have to take a connection unless I'm going somewhere super international. I mean, even Paris, London, Frankfurt, all, all those are spots I can get to in one flight, which is pretty nice. Um, so I would certainly miss that. I can get to Chicago. That's uh, Chicago or Denver. It's one of the only places I can get to. <laughs> the only places I can get to. But yeah. I agree. Charlotte's a beautiful area. Now it may, brought to you by the Charlotte's Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a great area because it's so accessible. Like you said, there's airlines. You know, you can get right in, but it doesn't feel like you're in a big big city. I, I like it. Yeah. So we turn this into a commercial for Charlotte. So nice job, Jim. Exactly. <laughs> Go Charlotte. All right. Well, why don't we start to wrap things up here? Uh, Mike, you've been great with your time and we certainly appreciate uh, spending it with us. Before we go, any kind of final thoughts or, or words of wisdom that, that folks can kind of take away from this conversation as they're thinking about, you know, sovereign identity or public identity or really anything we've kind of covered here that, that people should be thinking about? Yeah. Don't overthink it. Just go, right? The technology's there. There are plenty of people that can help you, um, Start the journey, get where you want to go. Um, I see too many people that are that have been sitting on the fence for for way too long, trying to figure out, trying to wait for the right. Oh man, it's got to be perfect. I'm going to wait for this this next thing. You know, this next thing that comes out that's going to get us where we need to go. Uh, trust me on this. I've been doing this my entire professional career. There is no holy grail. We're not going to get to this perfect utopia. It, we got to go and you have to start moving the needle. So move the needle and, you know, we'll come back next year and we'll move it a little bit further. But um, technology is is solid and, and we're ready to help um, people take that journey. All of us collectively as an industry ready to help people take that journey. So let's get going and let's start uh, let's start changing, changing our identity futures for the better. That sounds like a great uh, battle uh, cry here. I'm ready to go uh, go into battle with you, with you Mike. <laughs> Let's do yeah. it. Let's do uh, it. Jim, how about yourself? Well, Jeff, I keep I'm getting more and more won over on identity management with blockchain, decentralized identity. Um, I'm not sure. I'm still at that point where it's like I can fully articulate the use cases, but it's, it doesn't seem to be going away. And it seems to be kind of showing up as like, hey, you you know, here are some real world examples of 
how it can be useful. I think, you know, getting rid of the password, biometrics, um, wallets, it's, it's just, it's starting to connect. And even in this old brain of mine, the, the pathways are starting to, the, the diodes are starting to connect with one another. And, um, I don't know. I'm starting to get one over. Uh, I imagine there's a lot of loose wires and uh, stuff going on up there, but we'll leave that for for another conversation. So uh, I think that's a good spot that we can leave it for this week. I'm going to have some some links in the show note for you to be able to connect with uh, Mike on LinkedIn. You can learn more about ID Ramp as well. They're at idramp r a m p dot com, uh, and also put a link to Ontario's digital identity because they have a great website that kind of really. Uh, is probably one of the more transparent ones that I've seen as to how they've approached this. They've got uh, a whole section really on their timeline of how they've explained how they're going about doing it. So I think it'll be interesting at some point, maybe if we can pull some strings and maybe get someone from that team over here uh, uh, to discuss, you know, what how they've gone kind of bought, gone about doing this. So um, definitely check them out. Uh, we'll have that link in the show note as well as links for Jim and myself on LinkedIn. We're always happy to connect with folks who are listening. Send us show ideas, concerns, comments. Tell us we're stupid. Tell us we're great. Doesn't matter. Either one uh, works for us. Uh, so with that, we'll go ahead and leave it. You can also find us on the web uh, and at uh, identityatthecenter.com and on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for your time. Jim, thanks so much for your time. And we'll talk with everyone in the next one. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.